Gresham College presents The Eradication of Infectious Diseases by Professor Christopher Whitty. Good evening. So uh, this evening I'm going to talk in this series about bold ideas in medicine about what is probably the boldest idea of all. And that is the idea that in one generation we can get rid of a disease which has plagued humanity for all time uh, and get rid of it so that no one subsequently has it anywhere. That is the concept of eradication. And I think it's important to give a bit of context to this, to think about what, in, what uh, medicine was like when this college was founded. And at that stage, infectious diseases here in the UK and in virtually every other uh, country, or in fact in every other country, uh, was heavily dominated by infectious diseases. And I've listed here in black the top uh, few uh, examples, diseases which were widespread in England at the time that Gresham College was founded, which still exist in the world today, but which are not transmitted in this country today. They have been eliminated over the last few hundred years. And at the bottom, I've put some uh, infectious diseases that are still here in the UK, but are shadows of their former selves. But infection really dominated medicine at that stage. The idea of eradication is, in essence, a very simple one, and it is relatively easy to make uh, compellingly. And that is that we have the ability, we have the resources, and we have the will in our generation to take a disease which has plagued humanity forever and get rid of it in our lifetimes so that no future generation ever has to suffer it again. That is an astonishing uh, bit of uh, determination in public health and it clearly motivates people who otherwise would not, generally speaking, uh, be motivated by public health. I've given an example uh, here. Uh, for example, uh, Monaco, not a country particularly well-known for public health, its contribution to the global malaria eradication campaign, something which got people very excited in countries which really had not had uh, malaria for a long time, uh, the philanthropist Rockefeller, very interested, and the remarkable work that the Rotary Foundation has done to help uh, eradicate polio, which I'll come on to later. It also has a strong economic case. The idea is that if you choose your diseases wisely, some investment now means we will never have to pay to prevent or treat this disease in the future. And chosen wisely, this can be a very, very powerful uh, economic case, as I'll go on to talk about. Few stories in health get journalists more excited than uh, the promise of eradication, uh, whether realistic or not. And I've chosen to illustrate this in particular by the generally very sober and evidence-based uh, newspaper, The Economist, uh, here saying how uh, we should be trying to uh, eradicate seven diseases uh, in a headline in the last two years. But I think we have to be careful and we have to temper our determination on eradication with caution. And I'm going to, I'm going to compare uh, two different sides of this with two churches I was taken to as a child, only, only moderately willingly, uh, um, by my grandmother. And in the first one, uh, she who had been a doctor in West Africa at a time when smallpox had ravaged the population there, so she was very well aware of what it was like, took me to Gloucester Cathedral to the, uh, the statue of Edward Jenner, 
who was the person who got smallpox vaccination started and essentially was the person who got the, got the first building blocks. And she did this in the year that the World Health Organization declared smallpox eradicated. An astonishing achievement of that generation. But just up the road was another church, uh, which I was actually rather more interested in it because in it, a uh, large number of Civil War veterans in the English Civil War, so this is around the time of the early part of this college, uh, had been uh, held as prisoners of war. And one of them had uh, misquoted slightly from Spencer's The Fairy Queen and had uh, probably rather ruefully written, be bold, be bold, but not too bold. And when it comes to eradication, that I think probably should, in fact, be our motto. Now, I'm going to talk about two concepts that are slightly different but importantly different. The first one is eradication. Eradication is the complete and permanent removal of an infection from the world forever. It will never occur again. There are some very tight technical definitions, but that, for practical purposes, is the definition. To date, only one human disease has been eradicated, and that is smallpox, and one animal disease, rather less well-known, a disease called rinderpest, a very major uh, disease of cattle, which was eradicated uh, relatively recently, in fact. Alongside that is the idea of elimination of a disease. And this, generally speaking, means removing the disease completely from a particular geographical area. So the diseases I showed on my first slide, things like plague uh, and cholera, have been eliminated from the UK, but not eradicated from the world. Some examples here would be, for example, malaria and cholera, both of which we can get cases from time to time into the UK. Certainly malaria's cases, uh, case, uh, thousands of cases. The mathematics of transmission are probably worth understanding, and this is the only bit of maths I'm going to do uh, this evening, although eradication uh, is very heavily uh, dominated by maths, and that is the concept of R, or R0. In, if R is 1, what that means is, on average, one person with the disease gives it to one person who gives it to one person, and that disease is stable in the population. If R is greater than 1, let us say it is 2, then one person gives it to two people, give it to four people, give it to eight. That disease is expanding in the population. And if R is less than 1, let us say it is 0.5, then uh, 12 people would give it to six people, would give it to three people, and so on. If R is under 1 for a prolonged period in a place, that disease will eventually die out. So the aim of eradication is to get R below 1. That is mathematically all you are really trying to do. Now, the way you do this will vary enormously by different diseases. People often assume, for example, you have to do it by eradic but to do, uh, do this by vaccination. Vaccination is one tool. It was the right tool for smallpox, for example. But it might be insecticide-treated bed nets if you were talking about malaria. It might be, uh, for example, improving the water supply if you're talking about things like cholera. So the, the way you get R below 1 will depend on the disease. But the general principle is you always have to get it below 1 if you wish to attempt elimination or eradication. Now, if you want to eradicate a disease for all time, you're going to have to have a series of things which everyone agrees you absolutely need. If you do not have any one of these, you are guaranteed to fail and you should not start. The first is you must have an effective intervention 
which can what's called interrupt transmission. That is, get R below 1, usually significantly below 1, for a prolonged period of time. If you do not have that, you shouldn't start. Secondly, you need a disease which is relatively easy to diagnose because otherwise you don't know when outbreaks of the disease are occurring around you. So if you've got something which all you, all you have is someone who's got a bit of fever and that's about all, you're going to find it pretty difficult. Smallpox, for example, was very easy. You could see someone with smallpox with good lighting at probably about 50 paces. Uh, so this is, this is a disease that was relatively easy to pick up cases. Polio, for example, would come on to is another. So diagnosis is important. The third is there cannot be a significant animal reservoir. And for quite a large number of diseases which are important in humans, there are also big animal reservoirs. So, for example, we would all love to get rid of Ebola, to eradicate Ebola, but the fact is there is a reservoir in fruit bats, like this friendly guy uh, at the top of this slide. Uh, we would like to get rid of yellow fever, but there's a significant reservoir in monkeys, uh, as shown here. And there are very many other diseases where there is a reservoir where we cannot get rid of the disease in the animals, so eradicating the disease in humans is simply not realistic. You also need to have simple-to-use technology. The last stages of an eradication campaign will almost invariably be in remote areas, often in periods of conflict, often in places with very weak health systems. If you have something complicated you have to rely on, your chances are going to be very low. And I've given two examples here, one of which is Jenner's vaccine, vaccination, a relatively simple uh, technology. Uh, and the second is what we're going to come on to for eradicating guinea worm, which is simply a pipe with a bit of muslin uh, cloth to filter the water in it. Those technologies are highly effective for eradication. So you want something that's simple. You also need incredibly good organization. Because if you do not have good organization, you are going to fail fairly quickly. And this is an example from the major malaria eradication campaign. Basically, people were trained like military soldiers. You learned to spray a house. Everyone was trained the same way. If you did it wrong, you were probably you know, put on to potato peeling or whatever the equivalent was in the country that was relevant. Incredibly organized systems, very good mapping, very good logistics. If you don't have that, again, you will fail. And you need sustained political will and money. And I've illustrated this uh, at, at a conference here in London uh, where uh, various people said they would like to eliminate or eradicate a variety of diseases. Uh, here is Dr. Chan, the Director General of the World Health Organization, President Carter, who led a lot of the important work on this, uh, uh, Mr. Stephen O'Brien, now of the United Nations, then of the British government, uh, and a representative of the Gates Foundation. You know, these are the kind of coalitions you need to have a successful eradication uh, attempt. If you have all of those, you can think about it. And there will be four stages you need to think about, three of which are the easy ones, and one of which, as we'll come on to, is the hard one. You need a, a period of preparation where you actually work out exactly how you're going to do this. The logistics, the money, the political will, the communication, as well as the biological things. Then you have a period, an attack phase, during which you really go for it. You put in huge amounts of resources to try and get on top of this disease, and you expect this disease to fall really quite rapidly. If it doesn't, you're in trouble. You probably ought to abandon at that stage. Then there will be a period where you have to consolidate, because things will change very rapidly, and finally you make the final push to eradication. So that's the stages in an eradication campaign. 
Let's start off with smallpox, which was the, so far the only uh, successful eradication campaign. Smallpox was one of the great public health achievements of the last century. Variola major, which is the major part of smallpox, there are two, major, two main parts, had a mortality of more than 30% and over 80% when it was acquired in children. There were, and I'd like you to compare this to some of the things we worry about now, between 300 and 500 million deaths during the 20th century from this disease. And people who did not die from it were left horribly scarred uh, or could be disabled for, 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 for life. Eradication was agreed as a goal by the uh, WHO and a bit of politics here. It was proposed by the USSR at that point, uh, largely because the Americans had already proposed malaria and they wanted to have one each. So, um, uh, and uh, it was actually a very successful campaign, in fact spearheaded by an American physician who I'll come back to, uh, and eradication was declared finally in 1979, so within 20 years of the beginning of the campaign. Now, smallpox was a really good target for eradication. There was a simple-to-administer, highly effective vaccine. What you did is you just dipped this bifurcated needle in the, uh, in the vaccine, and then you used it just to, to uh, touch on people's arms. That was enough to make them immune. There was very strong public support. This was a horrible disease of which people were perfectly justifiably terrified. This is the cue for people queuing up for their polio vaccination, sorry, their smallpox vaccination in New York, for example. It's, uh, there was the, biologically, the disease is a relatively simple one. It didn't have the capacity to evolve very quickly, unlike, for example, influenza or HIV or malaria, which are evolving uh, the whole time. Very easy, as I said, to identify cases. In the last stages of the campaign, the smallpox eradication campaign enrolled school children where it just showed them pictures of people with faces who had smallpox and said, if you can find someone in the village who's got this, we'll give you a small uh, reward. And that was an extremely effective way to chase down the last cases. It had excellent organisation. This was in the period just after the war when the idea of mass remobilisation uh, was something which people had recent, very considerable experience of. And even so, the politics almost derailed it on several occasions. And if any of you uh, are sufficiently enthused after this talk to go away and wish to eradicate a disease, I would strongly recommend reading D.A. Henderson, who was the guy who led this, reading his account of the smallpox eradication campaign and the astonishing political problems he had as he went through it, even though everybody wanted it to happen. So with the smallpox campaign, we started in 1967 with very widespread smallpox, all the colours, the country's coloured here in red. By 1975, so less than 10 years later, it was down to India, where it was really down in its, its towards its final stages, uh, and then a large uh, outbreak in the Horn of Africa. Uh, and the final cases uh, were in Somalia in 1977. There was, I'm afraid, rather depressingly, one lab-acquired uh, case here in the, in the UK. So we had the dubious privilege of having the last case uh, due to a lab error. Uh, the total cost of this program uh, in, in the period of that time uh, was around $300 million. Uh, that was obviously a dollar was worth a different amount now. But the savings are estimated at around, for the same kind of pricing, $1.5 billion per annum, per annum, with a ratio of benefit to, uh, to cost of about 160 to 1. 
So a huge public health achievement, clearly cost-effective, really well done. This demonstrates smallpox that eradication can be achieved. A lot of lessons to learn from smallpox. I'm not going to go through them in detail, but I would like to make one very important lesson very clear. That what we learned from smallpox was in the initial phase of an eradication campaign, you have to have absolute tactical rigidity where you say every single person doing this campaign does it exactly the same way, absolutely everywhere. Militaristic efficiency. But in the last bit of the campaign, you have to turn that all the way around and say every little campaign is a completely different one and you need to do it your own way to fit your local circumstances. If you can't switch, and the danger is people who've been incredibly successful in this period say all we have to do is carry on doing the same thing and we'll win. And what the smallpox eradication campaign tells you is actually that guarantees failure. The last bit has got to be done much more flexibly. Now, two other eradication attempts are uh, ongoing at the moment, which are very, very close to success. But I want to be clear, they've been close to success now for several years. The first is a disease probably some of you will never have heard of called guinea worm, an incredibly unpleasant uh, infection. You catch it from uh, drinking contaminated water, which has got water fleas in it. And uh, what comes out after a while is this worm, which is incredibly painful. It's not just psychologically distressing, although it is very, very painful. Um, it used to be extremely common. The World Health Assembly, which is the, sort of the, the, uh, the world's uh, main health uh, multilateral body, it's the UN body uh, which directs the WHO, the World Health Organization, called for eradication in 1986 and then again in 1991 by 1995. That was what they thought they could do. And this is a recurring thing you see with eradications. At that time, they were estimated about uh, 3.5 million cases. Um, it's gone down quite a long way. By 2011, we were down to around 1,000 cases, substantial drop. Uh, in 1914, 2014, there were about 126 cases. Uh, and in the last year for which we have uh, records, last complete year, last, last year, uh, there were 25 cases. That's a 99.9% reduction. This disease is going to be eradicated, but it's going to take a long time. Now, the way this was done was simple. It was just to try and stop people bathing their feet in pools when they had this worm, to educate them not to infect the fleas, then to educate people to avoid drinking uh, water from ponds, and finally, if they must drink water from ponds, to do so through a, through a tube which had this piece of cloth in it. That was it. That basically was the strategy with fantastic mapping uh, and epidemiology. And that worked extremely well. But in the last little stage, we discovered that we'd thought that guinea worm only occurred in humans. But in fact, in the last stage, what we found is a small number of dogs have it. And that is the reason why it has taken so long to get on top of it in the last few countries. When you get to the end of an eradication campaign, you may find there are animal reservoirs you simply had no idea about until you get to that stage. The cost of this one uh, is around 30 million a year. But as I say, I think we will be successful. Polio eradication. Polio, I think most people will have heard of. Many of you may even know people who had polio when they were children, if you're old enough. Uh, you know, this is a disease that was... Uh, being transmitted in the UK during the lifetimes of most people in this audience. Polio, a crippling disease, 
for most people who are symptomatic, most people don't have symptoms, but those who have symptoms crippling, keep leaving them paralyzed, usually a leg, uh, sometimes other, other bits uh, of their bodies, but occasionally fatal uh, disease, very unpleasant disease, obviously lifelong. This was a distribution of polio in 1988. At that point, there were around 350,000 cases a year. The initial polio vaccination campaign, which was done by sugar lumps, many of you will have had these when you travel, even if you haven't had it for other reasons, was again highly effective. And by about 2013, we were down to polio in a very small number of countries, coloured yellow with each case dotted red. The point I'd like to make with these is these are all countries you'll have read about uh, if you read the foreign newspapers looking for conflict. So Pakistan, Afghanistan, the Horn of Africa, northern parts of Nigeria. Difficult places to operate in. Here, this, uh, this is up to the minute uh, information. I checked it this morning. Uh, we're tantalizingly close. There are 28 known cases in the last 12 months. If you take the calendar year 2016, there were 37 cases. Now, there are some technical reasons why it's been difficult to do. The first of which is people who are immunodeficient for a variety of reasons, it could be because of the way they're made, it could be because of dietary, a variety of reasons, they continue to excrete virus for longer than, you'd, than originally had been understood. Also, because you're using a live uh, vaccine, which people take in, sometimes the, the, the vaccine live form turns into a form which can paralyze people. So you have what's called vaccine-derived polio cases. In fact, now there are probably more of those than there are of the wild uh, polio cases. So there were biological reasons this was difficult. But if you look at the map, it, isn't, it clearly isn't biology. So the cases are mainly in Waziristan, the area just abutting between Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, and spreading out from there, and northern Nigeria in an area uh, under the control, in, at least in part, of Boko Haram. Um, so there were big problems with support from the local populations, and I'll come on to that in more detail later. And there were also, very depressingly, security concerns where, tragically, polio workers who were going out vaccinating children and adults uh, were killed uh, because of the fact they were doing this. So the insecurity uh, was a very major area. The cost of this one is about $12 billion per, in total, to date, costs can vary. So we will get there, but this has taken a lot longer and been a lot harder than I think the people who originally in, uh, in, expected it to be. So those are three uh, vaccination, uh, sorry, sorry, three eradication attempts, one of which has succeeded and one of which I'm confident will succeed on uh, guinea worm eradication and one of which I'm almost confident will succeed on polio eradication. There have, however, been a very large number of eradication attempts which have historically failed. And I've just uh, given a small subgroup of the ones where people have set out to eradicate or eliminate diseases, and they have failed. I'm not going to go through them in detail, but a few of them I'm going to come on to in the minute. The most important one, and this was actually the biggest eradication attempt to date, was the attempt in the, from the late 1940s uh, for about two decades to eradicate malaria. And in 1948, when this was really properly uh, getting underway, malaria had a much larger distribution than it does today. And whether you see this malaria eradication attempt 
as a success or a failure depends on what you measure it against. So there was malaria up in large parts of the United States. Malaria was a serious problem in much of Europe. Malaria was a problem in northern Australia and in parts of Asia we wouldn't currently expect. The malaria eradication campaign was brilliantly organised. It got uh, people to go out and spray walls with DDT, an insecticide which had a really big impact on malaria, all around the world. I've just illustrated this with the kind of lengths people went to to find the last cases of malaria all around the world. This was a really remarkable public health effort. But this eradication campaign collapsed at the end, and this is the map of malaria at the point when the malaria eradication campaign had collapsed. Good news, it's gone from the United States and parts of Central America. It's gone from Europe. It's been pushed down from northern Africa. Large parts of Asia are now uh, malaria-free, as, as is uh, northern Australia. And that, essentially, is where malaria has stuck ever since that time. It hasn't spread out from those areas, but neither is it substantially contracted back until relatively recently, which we'll come on to. So <coughs> why did this first malaria eradication attempt fail? Well, again, there was a mixture of biology and politics. Biological factors included, uh, and this is very important, that there were parts of the world where the R, the force of transmission, was over 100. That is, one case was capable, if you didn't deal with it, of infecting more than 100 people, and the tools we had were simply not strong enough to interrupt transmission. So the first thing is we didn't have tools that were quite strong enough. They were good enough in Europe, where the R was maybe around about one, slightly higher, slightly lower, but not strong enough for bits of particularly Africa. Secondly, when you start to put a huge selection pressure on an organism, whether it's a mosquito or a parasite, it will start to evolve around that. By basic evolutionary theory tells you that very, very simply. So what we got was developing insecticide and drug resistance because of the extraordinary pressure we were putting by the things we were doing. So the tools that were working very well at the beginning of the campaign were working less well by the end of the campaign. There were also substantial organisational problems. This was something which we were trying to deal with, a, a huge disease in virtually every country in the world simultaneously. So it was an enormous problem, challenge. Inevitably, some things were problematic. But most importantly, actually, towards the end, there was flagging enthusiasm and the money dried up. And I'll come back to why uh, in the last bit of this talk. Now, in the case of malaria, because it's a disease with a huge force of natural transmission, the minute you take your, your foot off the brake, it comes roaring back. These are places in uh, Latin America uh, and Africa, for example, Malaria in each one of them came right down when we tried eradication. The minute the eradication campaign stopped, it flicked right back up pretty well to where it was before. This disease, you, you either won completely in these countries or it would go back to where it was before. Complete failure. So it succeeded because it pushed malaria out of marginal areas. That was a success. But in areas where it started and failed... It was, we were basically back to square one. So in that sense, it failed. And the result of this was people stopped investing in malaria for almost three decades. They basically said, you malariologists, you promised us you could eradicate the disease. Look what's happened. You don't know what you're doing. We're going to start giving money to other people. 
I'm simplifying, but not much. So malaria mortality rates climbed through the last three decades of the 20th century. But actually, over that time, malaria has now since then began gradually to drift down. And there are parts of the world now where the, the darker the colour here, the more malaria there is. There are parts of the world now, now where actually malaria now could probably be eliminated, which it couldn't have been eliminated back in the 1960s because of development and a variety of other issues. So it is possible, and I think there is a serious public health debate going on at the moment, should we have another go at trying to eradicate malaria or at least eliminate it from large parts of the world where it previously wasn't eliminated? And uh, I think there's a, there's a very finely balanced argument on that. And a lot of this, in my view, comes down to whether a disease is sticky. So it is sticky under two circumstances. One, and by sticky, I mean if you get some gains, when you take your foot off the accelerator, you keep the gains you've actually started off with. If, for example, you're on an island and you get rid of a disease, then actually it may be, if, it's no more in, if no malaria, for example, is imported again, that once you've got rid of it, uh, it'll never come back and therefore you've, you've eliminated it for, for good. Uh, examples of that were some of the islands in the Mediterranean during the Second World War, in fact. This did, in fact, happen. It's one of the reasons people knew we could eliminate malaria. The more common thing, though, is that if the R, the force of transmission, is around or below 1 at the moment, then if, for example, you take it from 100 cases down to 50 cases, then when you stop putting your foot on the accelerator, it sticks at 50 cases. And if the R is below 1, it's going to carry on drifting down. So basically, if you can choose diseases where R is around 1 or below, even if you don't fully get to eradication or elimination this time, any gains you make, you keep. So this makes it a much less risky proposition than for things like malaria in the 1960s, where the minute you stopped, it came, comes roaring back. So that's an important differentiation, which I want to give some examples of. Now... I think now we're coming on to a bit more of the social and political aspects of malaria and also the effects of failure. And I want, I'm going to go through the first half of this talk is moderately optimistic. You can eradicate a disease. There are some we're going to eradicate. There are some areas where we made actually bigger strides than people realise. But I think it's important to realise with, with eradication in particular, without optimism we would never start, but with irrational optimism we will inevitably fail. And most people who call for eradication have an optimism bias. They want to believe it's possible because they think this is a terrible disease and it'd be just terrific to get rid of it. That isn't enough. And the thing to understand with eradication is the first three stages of your eradication attempt will always go well unless you've chosen your disease incredibly stupidly. You will get the preparation fine. The attack phase, it will go down, and you will have a period of consolidation. It is the final stage, which is the difference between good control, which costs a moderate amount, and eradication, which costs a huge amount, where the problems all start. It's in that final, what's called the final mile, but actually feels a lot longer. And here are some examples of attempts at eradication, which, in my view, have probably been actively unhelpful. The first <coughs> is leprosy. Leprosy is undoubtedly 
a terrible disease. Nobody could doubt you would want to get rid of it. It is a horrible disease to have. It is, uh, it is debilitating. It is stigmatizing. It's the disease that most people, it's associated in most societies uh, with uncleanliness, a whole variety of things, absolutely want to get rid of it. There was a decision to eliminate it as a public health problem, a very slippery concept that. What is a public health problem? Answer, it is what you think it is, which they defined as a reduction in prevalence below one in 10,000. Now, the, I'll show you on a graph what happened, but basically what happened is the prevalence, which is what they chose to measure, fell incredibly rapidly, and they reached their goal by the year 2000. Fantastic. Or not. What actually happened is they found large numbers of leprosy cases, and they treated them. And then they redefined leprosy, and they shortened the treatment course, and they said only people on treatment have got leprosy. Lots of people were still living in the world with major disability, but... They had been treated, so they were taken off the books. So the prevalence, the number of people with leprosy as defined, i.e. on treatment, went down very rapidly. But the number of new cases, these are the number of new cases, for example, in Brazil, have stayed absolutely stable. And if you look at the total number of cases the WHO thinks we've had uh, between 2006 and 2015, it's a change from 265,000 to around 210,000, virtually no change at all. Yet, by the definition, it has been eradicated or eliminated as a public health problem. What happened as a result of this? Well, someone asked a very good question and said, what is being eliminated here? And the answer was, not the disease. But because everyone believed leprosy had gone, what dried up was funding, expertise, scientific advance, resources. And so leprosy is arguably in a worse case now than it was before the eradication attempt began. Yours, very, and again, a skin disease, also a bone and joint disease, is a close relative of syphilis, but it's not passed on sexually, it's passed on person to person. 1949, Haiti alone had about a million cases out of a population of 3.5 million. Quite astonishing, really. Uh, by 1959, they decided they were going to do a yours eradication campaign. It was largely based on injecting or giving uh, antibiotics. And by 1959, only 40 cases were reported. Job done. So people's attention switched, switched to different things. They removed the money from yours. They gave it to the new public health problems. It was almost invisible by the 1970s. And by 1978, it had roared back, and we were almost back to exactly where we were before the eradication campaign started. But now nobody was interested in yours. Again, no research, no funding. Little, there were some technical reasons. There was little appreciation of what's called latent cases, people who don't, you don't look as if they've got yours, but in fact they do. We've got some slightly better drugs, azithromycin, which is an oral antibiotic. We've got better diagnostics. India has just eliminated yours recently. But many of the places where yours is going on are places like Papua New Guinea or the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC. These are difficult places to operate. Currently, there's a lot of talk about trying to eradicate yours again. I think we should learn some serious lessons from the 1950s. And there is a significant risk of eradication cannibalism. Because there is so much organization and money required for eradication, two major campaigns requiring worldwide buy-in are probably less than the sum of their parts. If you remember, the malaria eradication campaign almost derailed the smallpox campaign on several occasions. Smallpox eventually successful. And the reason for this is that the people have to pay for it at one end of the funnel. Donor countries, big philanthropy organizations, uh, countries uh, themselves. And the people who have to deliver this on the ground are the same people. 
very limited resource. The more different campaigns you're trying to run at the, at the time, the more difficult it is to maintain the funding and to have the right people on the ground to do it. Smaller campaigns start off relatively synergistically. They actually benefit one another, but over time they come to diverge. And the reason I'm making this point is we have made a decision to eliminate or eradicate a large number of diseases simultaneously, and the target date is 2020. We're now in 2017, so do the maths. Now, all of these diseases, and I'll give an example of them, are ones which, in my view, it is technically possible to eliminate or eradicate the disease. But all of them, it is certainly going to take more than another two and a half years. Trachoma. Trachoma is a blinding disease. This is one, it's the major infectious blinding disease transmitted by flies uh, and causes uh, these long-term problems. It's, a, it's a, an infection. You can eliminate it largely by giving out oral antibiotics. We can eliminate trachoma. It's just going to take a very long time, and we'll need to do it country by country. Lymphatic filariasis. This uh, disease, again, passed on by mosquitoes in this case. They passed on bl uh, blood sucker to blood sucker. Um, the worms get into the lymph nodes of the legs, arms, uh, breasts, uh, in, in uh, men genitals, uh, and they then swell up massively. I've just illustrated this with legs. Imagine trying to be a farmer but work with this kind of leg, a very serious disease. Again, we can uh, deal with this largely by mass drug administration, a bit by trying to reduce mosquitoes, but it's going to take a very long time. We've eliminated filaria, this disease, from several small countries and no large countries to date largely for organizational reasons. Uh, and uh, finally, a disease uh, like malaria, one I've worked on myself a bit, uh, human African trypanosomiasis, sleeping sickness. Sleeping sickness has been reducing very steadily. This is a fantastic graph. This is a disease which is 100% fatal, pretty well, uh, and where your final periods of, of life, if you have it, are that you essentially become demented due to infection. It's a terrible disease. The Standard treatment we had until relatively recently killed 5% of the people who took it. So the, the treatment itself had a 5% mortality rate. So this disease has come down very nicely. But look at this. This is the Democratic Republic of Congo, disease coming back now into 1956. And then there's a period of political instability here. In fact, a kleptocracy, in fact, a very unpleasant di dictator. And it took off again. So... All it takes is one bit of political instability, and what looks like success uh, can fail. And people talk about, in rather bold terms, getting rid of measles and HIV and a variety of other disease. I have to say I, I remain pretty sceptical. Let's take HIV. Uh, the world, uh, this is, these are two uh, things from the same document by the same organization, the uh, UNAIDS. The world has halted and reversed the spread of HIV, true, New HIV infections and AIDS-related deaths have fallen dramatically since the peak of the epidemic. Also true, due to very good treatments which weren't available. Now the response is going one step further, ending the AIDS epidemic by 2030. This is the rate of HIV infections in Africa and other areas. I would invite you to look at that between 2010 and 2015 and say, does that look as if that's going to cross the line by 2030? I think highly improbable. And for measles, measles is an example where we do have a very good tool, vaccine, but it's a disease that's incredibly infectious. It just requires vaccination rates to drop a bit, 
and it comes back. This is the effect in the UK, a disease which is a country which is relatively phlegmatic. One utterly false paper, blown up by media reports, fraudulent in its origin, led to this effect on measles rates in the UK. This is in a highly developed country with a very good public health system. So thinking about measles eradication, we're going to have to take quite a deep breath, I think. Single disease, so why do people call for eradication on the occasions when it isn't possible? There's very, very good reasons to call for it when it is possible. By definition, um, an overinvestment, it leads, if you call for eradication, what you're basically saying is, I want you to invest massively in my disease now because in the long run we'll save. That's what you're actually asking people to do. That's fine if you succeed, but if you don't, what you're doing is you're pouring a lot of resources into a disease which could be used more rationally around a whole bunch of other diseases. It does certainly get your disease talked about. If you say, if, if uh, Professor Cox said, I'm going to eradicate, I don't know, warts, there's a fair chance he'd be invited onto today program. This is uh, something that would be a talking point. But of course, there's absolutely zero chance that even a man of his eminence could achieve that. But even partial success is seen as a failure. And in the world of public health, as in the rest of the world, success, failure is an orphan. People just switch off when you claimed you're going to succeed, and then you fail. And if you look at the first eradication campaign for malaria, leprosy, and yours, overinvestment due to early promise of success led to massive underinvestment subsequently. So it can actually be very damaging. Now, why does this happen? Well, there is, in fact, a political paradox to eradication, and you need to understand this at least as much as the biology. The first thing is that eradication is always most popular where it is least achievable. So let us take malaria eradication. If you asked any sensible politician in northern Nigeria, would you like to eradicate malaria? Of course, they're going to say yes. This is what their constituents are talking about. This is what the public is talking about. Everybody knows someone who's got malaria. But there is almost zero chance of doing it with current tools. Hopefully, we will be able to do it in our lifetimes with different tools because the force of transmission is too high. The reason it is a popular thing is because it's common, and the fact it's common makes it impossible. If you asked a Latin American Minister of Health, do you want to eliminate malaria? They would say, no, I have so many bigger problems on my plate, but technically they could do it. So there is a mismatch between where it is popular and where it is achievable. And there's also a political paradox of time. It is very popular right at the beginning of the eradication campaign because at this point, this disease is a very big problem everybody sees. As time goes by and it goes down the slope, this disease moves from being the number one killer of children to being maybe the number five killer of children. People are still interested here. To maybe the number 20 killer of children. You're still putting in every year the same amount of money. And at a certain point, someone says, my, child, my children in my village are dying of measles. They're dying of uh, diarrheal diseases, they're dying of pneumonia, yet you put all of this resource into malaria or polio. Why are you doing this? And at some point, someone says, actually, you've got a point. We should put the money where the resource is. So initially very popular. The closer you are to the end point, the, more, the less popular it becomes. And that means that for the end game, you've got biological and epidemiological challenges. It gets much harder but epidemiologically to find the bits of the country, the bits of the world where transmission is going on. What happens is eradication 
pockets of transmission get smaller and smaller and smaller, usually in more and more marginalized populations, often in places which are either physically inaccessible or in war. At the same time, there's extreme selection pressure, meaning that if the organism can evolve around what you're doing, it will do so. Bi basic biology tells you that. Uh, and towards the end, rather like your guinea worm, you may find reservoirs of infection in other animals that we hadn't even thought about. But there are also big social and political problems in the end game, of which the recent tragic deaths of polio uh, vaccinators are a particularly extreme example. And I'd just like to paint a picture. If you are in a village in, let us say, northern Nigeria, and you've got multiple problems of schooling, of health, and yet all the government, all the time, the only time you ever see the government is when they sweep in twice a year to do a polio eradication campaign for a disease you never see because it's down to tiny numbers. And then someone says to you, it's all a conspiracy, and look at all these Westerners flooding in. They're helping them as well. And by the way, the bottles say sterile on them, and they're thinking about you know, reducing the Muslim population, whatever it might be. You can see how it is very easy to weave a conspiracy theory in quite rationally to this kind of situation, which is indeed what has happened uh, to some extent in Pakistan and uh, Nigeria, for example, uh, for polio. Not helped if you don't like the government or the West and they have publicly guaranteed success. That doesn't make you terribly keen to actually help them. And people rationally prioritize current problems rather than problems they see as historic. All of us do. And finally, it's based, you know, the reason that some of us will be supportive of eradication is based on an idea of transmission of disease, which we may all share, but not everyone in the world will do as well. The biomedical model of the disease on which the whole edifice is based is not universally accepted. If you put this together, actually persuading people in the final mile they really need eradication can be very, very difficult for rational reasons. So Whilst being very supportive of eradication where we can do it, I think we need to be careful. And I think this is a very good quotation from D.A. Henderson, who was so far the only person who has led a successful global eradication campaign. And what he said was, I believe it is critical that we should not be blinded to a range of new public health program paradigms by staring too fixedly at the blinding beacon of a few eradication dreams. So my conclusions for this would be, we know we can eliminate really important diseases from geographical areas because we've done it lots of, lots of times, including very serious diseases here in the UK. We know we can do it, and in many places we should look to do it. If you can find a disease where it is sticky, and that usually means where the R is around one, then if you try elimination or eradication, you don't quite succeed, you keep all the gains that you've made, and you can probably count that as a reasonable public health success. And several of the neglected tropical diseases, and I've only talked about three of them, but there are others, are very good candidates for doing this. And I've illustrated this, uh, for example, with onchocercosis, river blindness, uh, which is another one which I haven't talked about, which again is potentially an elimination target. When you move on to the much bigger target of global eradication, however, you have to be very cautious. You need very good technology, the maths must be right everywhere, and you must get the social, economic, and political science for the end game right before you start, because this will come back to bite you in the final stages when you're already committed. 
Calling for eradication is very easy, and I have to say, in my view, very popular. Achieving it is absolutely not. And if it takes a long time, mostly in the final mile, there's a big risk that the political will and money will dry up, as has happened on several occasions. And you can guarantee, as with any major project, that anything that can go wrong will, including many things you hadn't thought about in the beginning. But where it works, and it has worked in smallpox, and it's going to work uh, in guinea worm and uh, polio, and I hope for several other diseases in time, it's a large investment for indefinite gain. So it's a very, very attractive thing to do where we can. So smallpox is gone. Guinea worm will succeed. Polio will if we can sustain the long haul. And I have to say, with all of these, the UK, across multiple uh, changes of government, has been a huge supporter of trying to make these things happen. Several of the neglected tropical diseases, horrible diseases, can be eliminated piece by piece, but it'll take time. The goal of 2020 seems remarkably optimistic. And certainly excitement about malaria eradication, which we're now talking about again, largely because of uh, being triggered uh, by the Gates uh, Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates, uh, has led to uh, widespread innovation that wasn't there. So there are some real positives. But trying and then failing eradication is costly. It pulls resources away from other priorities. It breeds cynicism because people just see large amounts of resource going to things that don't work. It may destroy good control programs for decades. So don't call for it when we can't do it. And for the great majority of infectious diseases at this point in time, we can't. We must be bold. We must be bold, but not too bold. Thank you very much. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.